Thank you very much, Richard. Thanks very much for, for coming, all of you. And I'm always aware, I mean, this isn't the first time I've, I've talked to the, um, the Nuffield students here, and I am always very aware that there are journalists in this room who are as experienced as I am in their own countries. And so one of the things which is good is that when I finally shut up, we'll, we'll have an exchange because I'm sure there's all sorts of ways that you do things which are different from the way that we do things, which, you know, we can always learn from each other. Um, I'm going to talk a bit about covering Syria and the refugee crisis, but I'm also going to talk about technology. If I say I'm going to talk about technology, it's not because I understand it, but it's to do with geography and maps and borders and connections and the way the world is is changing. And so you think about Syria and how we cover Syria. It is, of course, incredibly difficult because it is so dangerous. And, you know, maybe the most potent <coughs> form of censorship is kidnap and beheading. And that is something that, as we all know, you know, we have journalistic colleagues, James Foley, Stephen Sotloff, to whom that happened and other colleagues from European countries who were kidnapped by Islamic State and then were, were ransomed. So unsurprisingly, um, many news organizations are unwilling to send staff um, over the border from Turkey or from Lebanon into, into Syria with, with the rebels. We did at the beginning, um, and then also one of my best friends, Marie Colvin, was killed um, by a government mortar when she was reporting from Homs in Syria after going in uh, across the border from Lebanon in February 2012. So this has been a, a disastrously dangerous conflict to report. That, that has coincided with this change in technology. Marie used to say, sometimes I feel that I'm the last reporter in the YouTube world. And I know what she means, because YouTube has become an incredibly important part of how we report. And sometimes that is extraordinary and powerful. So I'm going to start off actually by showing a clip which illustrates that, because the, the week before last, um, a, a hospital, the Al-Quds Hospital in Aleppo, on the rebel-held bit of Aleppo, was bombed. We think by the government. The Russians say they didn't do it. We think it's the Syrian government. And uh, Dr. Mohammed Mars, who was the last pediatrician in rebel-held Aleppo, was killed. And so we all reported that, and then this footage came out. Now, the footage I'm going to show is from a security camera, and we actually put this up on, in the form I'm going to show it, we put it up online, um, and we use it differently in television programs. So there's no sound, um, but let's just watch it, and then... So, I mean, that's just an extraordinary piece of footage, which 
you know, illustrate, you show something that you would never normally be able to to see the last moments of of that doctor, and I think that that illustrates the power of security cameras, amateur video, and so on. Now, I'm not even completely sure how we got hold of that, whether somebody posted it up on YouTube. I don't think they did. I think it was somebody we were in touch with, my foreign editor was in touch with, who got it out on a memory stick to, to Turkey, and then it was um, sent to us. But it is an example of how even sometimes if you can't get over the border, you can find out what's going on and you can and you can show it and then we had one again last week which was there was a riot uh, not right that's wrong there was a like an uprising amongst the prisoners in hammer prison um they were <coughs> pretty much all political prisoners and five of them had been condemned to death and were to be moved to sednaya which is a prison in damascus which is has a, re a reputation for torture and and so on and the prisoners um protested and, uh, and then there was a siege of the prison, and the government forces came outside, and then they started tear gassing, and the prisoners were filming being tear gassed with their mobile phones and getting that footage out, more or less as it was happening. But of course, what they didn't show was the fact that they had taken seven guards hostage, because and that's what you've got to be really careful about, because you're not there. And... They are, that's different because it's security camera, but with the amateur footage, the people who are sending the amateur footage out usually have an agenda. And we at Channel 4 News now, we employ somebody who's a Lebanese journalist who is an expert on how to verify video. And it's so important. So um, Kamal just, I mean, Kamal's gone a bit bonkers with all this actually, because you know, you, you live in this world of, video, a lot of which is very graphic and very horrible. Um, but he now knows, oh yeah, you know, that's sent by so-and-so. I know that person. He's right. He's reliable. Ah, oh, that piece of video. I saw, I'm sure I saw that last year. Because people try and pass off videos saying this happened last week, which actually happened last year. Now I look at it. I don't know. It, you know, it all looks very similar to me, but Kamal knows. He knows because he's become a real expert on it. So it's almost like a new form, a new form of journalism. And it has massively um, enhanced what we can see and understand and know of what's going on in the war in Syria. But, but I'm an eyewitness. That's why I exist. That's why I'm a journalist. Because for me, being there is what it's all about. I have to be there. If I'm not there, it's not just that I don't know what's going on. I don't, you know, you can find that out by ringing people, but I can't smell it. I can't feel it. And sometimes there are things that you, you just can't find out unless you're there. And that is, for me, still the most important role of the journalist. And I've been going in and out of Syria on a government visa for um, three years, four years now, since 2013. And um, there are restrictions. There are minders and so on. But, you know, <clears throat> one can always slip and slide a little bit. And most times when I've been to Syria, I've managed to, you know, get things that the government doesn't like. You just, oh, I don't know. So once we managed to get to a besieged area called Duma with a UN convoy, which we weren't supposed to, but we were quite lucky because we had a, uh, our fixer, who's rather brilliant, um, she had a white car, which looks a bit like the UN cars. And also she's uh, in her 50s and she's head-scarfed. Um, and so she just... 
um, she just is supremely confident at checkpoints. And so we just inserted ourselves into the, um, the UN convoy, and she just, marhaba, marhaba, and so on to the guards. And they were like, oh, whoa, this is weird. Oh, burger, first calf woman, burger. Oh, she's gone. And so, we, you know, we managed to, um, to get in when we weren't supposed to. So nearly always we managed to do something. And um, about a month ago, um, you remember Palmyra had been held by the Islamic State, and they had destroyed some very important parts of that ancient city. They had destroyed the Temple of Bel, Temple of Balshamin, the Triumphal Arch. Um, and then the government forces um, seized it back, and we managed to get into Syria um, about a week after, and we were, in among, we were amongst the first journalists to get down to to Palmyra, and they were trying to control us. Actually, it was very funny, because I went with, a, I went with um, there were about 20 French journalists, and there was a colonel in the army who was in charge of us. I, have you ever tried, any French journalists, everybody tried to control 20 French journalists? <laughs> give up, just give up. It's not going to work. In the end, the general was stuck, or the colonel, whatever he was, was stuck in the middle of Palmyra, shouting in Arabic, Soldiers obey orders. Journalists don't obey orders. You must obey orders. And we all kind of went off and did what we, we wanted to do. Um, one of the stories which had come out of Palmyra during the Islamic State occupation was about um, Khaled al-Assad, who was the keeper of the monuments. He was in his 80s. And it had come out that they had murdered him. But then... I found another story about somebody else who they'd murdered while I was there. And this is exactly the kind of story that if you're not there, no one's ever going to know. So can we show this one? This is now on YouTube. Let's see if it Destruction was their creed, but the jihadis of the Islamic State couldn't obliterate the ancient city of Palmyra. One man sacrificed himself to preserve history for its descendants. Khaled al-Assad the 83-year-old director of antiquities refused to tell them where the ancient treasures were hidden. He was crucified and his body hung on this column for two or three days. His head was placed here. His glasses were still on. I've managed to get the glasses and I keep them with me. Khaled son Mohammed has returned to Palmyra to look for his father's body and give him a decent burial. Islam teaches us we should bury the dead. Even when you kill someone, you should bury him, not leave him to be eaten by stray dogs. Is this a human act? Is this the leniency and mercy advocated by Islam? They took a sledgehammer to the 2,000-year-old Lion of Alat outside the museum. Muhammad believes his father's conviction for worshipping statues was just an excuse. They simply wanted to steal ancient treasures to sell. Khaled al-Assad gave his life for this museum and for the ancient site of Palmyra. When he was killed, people around the world mourned. But we found out that the jihadis killed someone else that day as well. There was another body lying completely covered because they wouldn't show the face of a woman even in death. Her name was Fatima and she was tried and condemned to death right here in the basement of the museum, which they used as an Islamic court. 
Some members of Fatima's family fled to Babar Amar in Homs, damaged like Palmyra, but by last year relatively safe. Many Palmyra residents stay here in half-destroyed buildings. Her sister and mother say they have no photo, only memories. Still in fear of IS, they don't want their full names given and will only show part of their faces. We didn't all leave at the same time. We fled in groups. Whoever had the chance to flee didn't hesitate. But she refused, saying, this is my home and I'll never leave. They're illiterate, they know nothing. They can't teach us religion. They tell us to wear veils and long gowns. She wouldn't accept it. She dressed decently, but she didn't cover her face. They told her this is not religious, and she said she wasn't following their rules. Then news came that Fatima's husband had abandoned her, and she had been detained by the jihadis. Because I am a mother, I couldn't stop myself from going there. I roamed the town asking people about my daughter. My sons-in-law would give me rides on their motorcycles. We went to the municipality, the museum, the court. We spent days, but in vain. The next news they heard was the worst. Some people say she was killed together with Khaled al-Assad. There is a body of a woman next to him. When they kill a woman, they cover her face so as not to show it. Her mother returned to the Islamic court in the basement of the museum, where finally one of the jihadists spoke to her. He told me, we killed your daughter. I asked him, why? What did she do? She's not a soldier, so why kill her? He gave me a piece of paper saying she was stubborn and mocked their religion. This is the paper he gave me. It says she is sentenced to death for apostasy, for insulting her own creator by questioning the wearing of the full face veil, for ceasing to pray and fast, all her belongings to be confiscated. No appeal. Back in Palmyra, outside the museum, they wrote on a container, the Islamic State will prevail, whoever defies us. Under such pressure, most people flee or submit, not Fatima, nor Muhammad's father, Khaled. They brought him here barefoot and told him to kneel to be executed. He refused, telling them he would die standing, like the palm trees of Palmyra, which die upright and do not fall. They called Khaled al-Assad the father of Palmyra. Maybe Fatima was the daughter. Some might call such people suicidal, foolhardy. But their legend is embedded in the stones the jihadis could not destroy. The famous man and the unknown woman who dared to defy the Islamic State. The reason I, I showed that story is because it's just not the kind of story you could ever get without being there. Because, I mean, how did we find about Fatima? 
we have a there's a minder. She's a government minder, but she's quite nice. And she said to me, "Oh, are you? Well, there's a woman. She was killed along with Khalid Al Assad. You interested in meeting the family?" I said, "Yeah, I am." And um, so she took us along to meet them. And then this this story came out. And for me, there's an incredible moment because you're always kind of thinking, "Well, is this true? Can this be true?" Then she got out the piece of paper, which was the judgment. You know, the Islamic State judgment on the piece of paper. And the daughter read it to me. I mean, to me, that was just. It was just extraordinary, and I suppose I also feel it's a story, I mean, you're far bit for me to praise my own stories, but I felt, I sort of felt I made her live again for a little bit, you know, just for four minutes, for somebody who nobody would ever know about or care about or think about, that just for that very brief moment of time on Channel 4 News and, you know, hereafter in cyberspace, um, this unknown woman becomes famous. And I don't know why that matters to me, but somehow or other it, it does. I feel that that's part of, of what we do. And the other thing in other stories which we did for Palmyra, which I was quite surprised about, was that, I mean, it's quite interesting that, because we had all this stuff about Palmyra, um, the ancient city being partially destroyed. It's actually about 20% destroyed, 80% still as before. Um, by Islamic State. But the modern city, I'm not going to show this um, story, but there was another story we did. The modern city has been destroyed by <coughs> Syrian government and Russian air bombardment. So there's that strange parallel, which you only understand from being there, that it was like, and there, there were government soldiers looting. We actually filmed, they were so busy looting, they didn't really notice us filming. And because the minder was so busy chatting to her son, who's in the army, she didn't seem to notice us filming, you know, them looting which you could see. So you have, you have the modern Syrian army sacking the modern Palmyra exactly as um, you know, Emperor Aurelian's people sacked Palmyra in ancient times when Queen Zenobia you know, rebelled against the, the Roman Empire. So you have this extraordinary sense of, of history. Now, how you get... Let's talk a little bit more about connection because how we got that story out... I mean, in... As many of you will know if you do this kind of work, you know, things have changed so much in terms of how you get a story out. I mean, that one we got out, um, you're not supposed to take began small satellite dishes um, into Syria. They don't let you. There are ways and means. Um, but otherwise, you're reliant on the internet. Of course, the hotel internet is crap, so you can't do that. So you get a little dongle. And so we ended up driving around Homs, desperately trying to get this thing out, finding a place where the dongle would work. And we didn't make the top of the program, but we did make it before the end of Channel 4 News. I mean, this is what... And people often say to me, oh, gosh, you have all these war zones and so on, isn't it so dangerous? I said, well, what will shorten my life is anxiety over, you know, whether the bloody satellite's going to work or the internet's going to work. I think somebody is <laughs> identified. You know what I mean, don't you? It drives me nuts. Because um, there's nothing you can do about it, you know, and it's so... And now, of course, there's all this pressure to get things out immediately. You know, whereas when, when I first started as a reporter, I was a BBC stringer in Nairobi in Kenya, and um, working for radio, and I, I used to go to the airport at the end of the day, there was a BA flight, and stand there with a cassette saying, Anybody British? Somebody would say yes. And they say, oh, would you like to carry a cassette for the BBC? It's my story for, for tomorrow. Um, somebody will meet you with a sign, and then they might even pay for your taxi home. And somebody would always say, oh, yes, no problem. 
And that was how we did it. I mean, people just hand carry stuff. Can you imagine that now? You'd be locked up just for suggesting that somebody carries something. And so, you, and then you, know, you went on to where you always had to go to a TV studio or a big satellite dish. And now we're at the point where, you know, you have the the BGAM, which is the small, um, you know, satellite dish about this big. Or if you're an area with uh, mobile phone coverage what we call an Avi West. I mean, I don't understand how it works, but, you know, you put in three or four SIM cards into a computer and whoomph, off it, off it goes. So you have all this pressure to do things very quickly, which is a mixed blessing, but it is, it is just extraordinary. And again, it's this thing about how geography changes, that geography is not... You know, we think about geography as borders changing, which they also are, obviously, in the Middle East, but it's also about connectivity. There's a guy called Parik Khanna who's just written a book called um, Connectivity, which I think is really interesting. He's going to read um, a couple of statistics from it, which I found really fascinating, because he talks about remapping the world in terms of connections, um, you know, cyber connections, pipelines, um, you know, trade flows and so on. It's called Connectography, Mapping the Future of Global Civilization. Parag Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A. It's interesting. Um, he said, because the world has less than 500,000 kilometers of borders, but by comparison, it has 64 million kilometers of highways, 4 million kilometers of railways, 2 million kilometers of pipelines, and more than a million kilometers of internet cables. So, you know, that is what... I've, and when you look at some of the maps, you, you, it sort of makes you think that, that our concepts uh, have to all change. Because political geography changes, as we know. You know, lines in the sand get rubbed out. Sykes-Picot, the line between Iraq and Syria is pretty much gone, thanks to the Islamic State. But that's, even that's not really the point. The point is how information flows. And that brings me on a little bit to the, to the refugees. Because I spent last summer in the Balkans and Europe um, with refugees. And one of the, of course, there's been migration all the way through history, there's been migration through uh, migration. But the it's, the, it's the digital infrastructure which makes all the difference. So everybody in Syria knows what's going on. Everybody knows about, you know, Germany opening, Macedonia closing the border. All that information is there. And in Lesbos, you know, little dinghies would arrive in Lesbos. And, um, you know, people would come out, you know, crying and shaking and freezing cold. And then the volunteers would rub them down and give them a cup of tea. And the first question was, where's the nearest Wi-Fi? That was pretty much everybody's first question. Because it's, that's how they're finding out, oh, you know, Hungary has closed its border and put up a fence. So, you know, they're like water going around, so we're going to have to go the other way or this way. Or you've run out of money, so you have to go to the West, you know, Western Union or whatever. Money can be sent. So it's, that's, you know, that's what has made this refugee and migrant flow possible. And then you, so you have all the, you know, people like, this country, the government here, and other governments wanting to put up borders and saying that refugees can't come. And, and that you know, works to some extent. I mean, this is an island. We keep people out. And then one of the reasons they want to do that is because of terrorism and keeping terrorists out. Well, duh, ideas 
flow. You don't stop ideas. And in fact, it was Mario Renzi. Let me see if I can find Mario Renzi. He said, how long, he's the uh, Italian prime minister, how long do you think a wall might last in the internet age? How can you defend a border when terrorists are born and raised in our own cities? Which is obvious, and we know, in the, the Paris attacks last year, which I also covered, um, you know, there was this whole fuss at one point that one of the attackers had a, you know, a passport and he'd come through the Balkans. It was never completely clear to me, I mean, it was a fake passport, it was never clear to me whether he really had. But even if he had or he hadn't, the rest of them were all born in Paris or they'd been born in Brussels or whatever. So it's really, it's really not the point. It is a digital caliphate. And that's what, um, that's what governments are, are failing to deal with and failing to, to understand. And I think that as journalists, we have to try and understand that and explain that. And another of the things which I, I think about borders is that, you know, we all, I mean, it's another way of, let me tell another story about the connections. I was getting on the ferry from Mytilene in Lesbos to uh, go to Piraeus in Greece. And I, because I tweet, because I have to tweet, I am a journalist, therefore I tweet. Um, and um, I just tweeted out, you know, about to get on the ferry. And my friend Sebastian, who's a stringer in Erbil, he had just seen... Um, a friend of his, who used to be his translator in Erbil, um, Bassam, had just taken a picture of himself next to a ferry, which he'd posted on Facebook. So Sebastian sends me a message saying, oh, look out for Bassam, maybe he's going to be on your ferry. So I thought, yeah, well, you know, there's thousands of people on this ferry, that's not going to happen, but anyway, whatever. So I show it to the rest of my team, I say, look, just look out for this bloke. And Janine, who's the Greek producer, look up and she says, it's them over there. I said, good God. <laughs> so it is. And so I just went up and we filmed all of this. I went up and said, excuse me, hello, um, uh, are you Bassam? I'm a friend of Sebastian. Whereupon, of course, he burst into tears, I burst into tears, we all burst into tears. Uh, but, but it was, you know, it was just extraordinary how you can make those connections instantly. I mean, I have to say now, I, I, I mean, he's a sort of a successful and happy refugee because his family were already in Hamburg. Um, and I'm about to unfriend him on Facebook because every day it's about 10 pictures. Me in Hamburg eating an ice cream. Me in Hamburg with my grandson. Me in Hamburg looking at, oh, a beer garden. <laughs> so um, Bassam is a happy story, but he communicates a lot. Um, <laughs> and I suppose one of the other things which I thought about him, because that was a story that, that worked and people liked. And then... There was another story I did from Libya last year, which was in Misrata in the detention centre. Now, most of the people in Libya, as you'll know, are from West Africa rather than from Syria. And they tend to be young men. And young, young African men, I think of them as being lowest on the hierarchy of desperation. You know, if you're going to be a refugee, my advice to you would be a Syrian child. I think that is the best thing if you want sympathy. But, you know, be a young African man, sorry. Nobody cares about you. And, you know, however, however real your longing, however, however justified your desire for a better life, however hard your journey across the Sahara with all the stones marking the places where people died when the smugglers pushed them off the back of the pickup, nobody, nobody cares about you. And maybe you don't fit the category of refugee, because I think one of the things that you learn when you do these stories is that this category
category, you know, refugee, good, migrant, bad. Most people are somewhere in between. It's all very complicated. You know, life was hard. You fell out with your father. You joined this political party. You did this. You did that. It's all complicated and mixed up. You know, I did this story about these guys. There was a Nigerian guy, a Gambian, and an Eritrean. And the, the Nigerian, of course, told me he was a Somali initially. He said, oh, I'm from Somalia. I said, oh, yeah. He said, I said, what's your name? He said, my his name is Wisdom Okeke. I said, oh, that's interesting, a Somali with a Nigerian name. How did that happen? <laughs> you know, do you think I was born yesterday? Um, he said, oh, well, it, it's very difficult. It's a complicated story. I said, yeah, I bet. Then I, I don't know why I'm telling this just because he's funny. He's so funny, Wisdom. Um, I said, why do you want to go to Europe? And he said, he said, my two favorite Europeans are the Pope and Queen Elizabeth. I saw her in all of her regalia at the opening ceremony of the Olympics. And I thought, you know, there again is this connectivity. There's this guy in Nigeria watching the Queen jumping out of a plane um, at the ceremony of the Olympics. And it, it's all mixed up. People know all these different things. And that's, that's why it's impossible. This flow is not going to, to stop. And with that story, after I did that story, I spent a lot of time with them, hearing their stories. And again, a friend of mine said to me afterwards, you know, when I watched that story, it made me think of my own sons. And I was very pleased about that because I thought, if she makes her think of her own sons, then that makes her identify. And in the end, that's the most difficult border. The most difficult border is the border in our own minds, the border in our own brains that stops us identifying with other people and thinking and makes us think that they're different. And that is maybe the most important border that we as journalists have to breach in our reporting. Thank you.